Will you all join me in prayer? Jesus, we turn our faces towards you. And I know there are some in this room um, who have known your face for a while. We turn our face towards you. Life gets in the way. We grow distracted. Uh, Forgive us of that, but we turn our face back towards yours. And there might be some in this room who have no idea who you are, not sure they can trust you. Um, Give them the courage to tentatively, cautiously turn their face towards you and meet them. Lord, bless this message today. Speak to your community for your story is so captivating. Your story transforms us in a way that nothing else has. We love you. We praise you. It's in your resurrected name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome again, guys. My name is Russell. I'm one of the pastors here. If it's your first time at Hope Brooklyn, thanks for joining us. Um, As Anna mentioned, we are in our season of Lent, and we're calling our Lenten series Mirrors. And the idea behind Mirrors is that you become what you worship, that humans are primarily not knowers. We're not transformed by what we know. We're transformed by what we love. And therefore, uh, Lent is the season of the 40 days leading up to the passion events, crucifixion and resurrection. And it parallels the 40 days that Jesus was tempted in the desert. And what we find in human nature is that it is not natural for us to turn our faces toward Jesus. And so as early as, you know, the second century, we have record of the first church realizing that, that it wasn't natural, that they, they experienced Jesus, they encountered him, they had a radical transformation, but then it was very easy to slip back into the ebbs and flows of life. It was very easy to slip back into turning their faces toward things other than him. We call that idolatry. And so they sort of codified this season called Lent, where they would do four things. And the culmination of these four things is called repentance. They would name those things, those idols that they turned their faces toward other than God. They would confess them. They would fast from them, which simply is a church word that means to forego them, to, to go without them. But then they have this sort of this empty space where they're not turning their faces toward these idols. What they would do is they would replace it with a kingdom liturgy. They would replace it with the practice of the kingdom that helps them sort of turn their hearts back toward Jesus. And that was their way of reorienting their hearts to the gospel narrative. And throughout this series, we've, we've talked about various idols. And today what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about individuality and intimacy. And individuality um, as an idol, right? And I'll explain a little bit more what I mean. But before we get into it, uh, just real quickly, intimacy is a word that I think has been co-opted a lot by romantic relationships, but intimacy is not exclusively romantic relationships. So you know how like, I don't know, in math, wait, a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square, right? The rectangle is sort of the the broader category and the square is a subcategory. I believe, and I think the gospel makes clear that intimacy is a broader category and romantic, marital intimacy is a subcategory. So I wanna expand. So when I talk about intimacy today, I'm talking about the broader category. And the reason why it's important to contrast intimacy versus individuality is because I, I think that intimacy is the language that describes the life all Christians are invited into. 
If you wanna know whether you're a Christian here or not a Christian here, if you wanna know what Jesus is inviting you into, he's inviting you into a life of intimacy with him and with each other. The, uh, the French novelist, Francoise Sagan, she was quoted one time in the newspaper Le Monde. And uh, they, they were talking to her and interviewing her. And the interviewer asked, well, then you have had the freedom you wanted, right? You've had the freedom you wanted. And her answer was telling. She goes, I was obviously less free when I was in love with someone, but one's not in love all the time. Apart from that, I'm free. Now that's really, really telling. If you were here last week, we talked a little bit about freedom. And what we discuss is that the modern idea of freedom is autonomy. The modern idea of freedom is independence. For Sagan, freedom is when she was completely not confined or constrained by any relationship whatsoever. For Sagan, you can be free or you can love another, but you can't do both at the same time. And freedom as individuality is best. Now, why that's fascinating, because I think the gospel says completely the opposite. The life of a Christian is a life of intimacy. And actually, according to the way God has designed the world in each of us, we are most free when we willingly bind ourselves to another, be it a spouse, be it a friend, be it a family member. We are most free when we limit our, our autonomy to serve another. Modern freedom is individual. God's freedom is intimacy. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna read a passage of scripture that's gonna sort of help us contrast those two ideas. And we're doing it a little different today. It, it's a, it comes from John 17. It's called the high priestly prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus offers right before he's betrayed by Judas in the garden and the events of his death and resurrection take place. And it's a really powerful prayer, but it's kind of cyclical too. So we wanna try, we wanna experiment something because it's the preview season. And Nathan's gonna come up and he's gonna read it for us and almost provide a little bit of a performance. Um, and we're not gonna put the words on the screen. So if you wanna uh, listen along or close your eyes and allow the words to sort of sink in as he reads it. Reading from John's Gospel, chapter 17. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Reveal the glory of your Son so that he can give the glory back to you. For you have given him authority over every man and woman in all the earth. He gives eternal life to each one you've given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, by knowing you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by doing everything you told me to. And now, Father, reveal my glory as I stand in your presence, the glory we shared before the world began. I've told these men all about you. They were in the world, but then you gave them to me. Actually, they were always yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed you. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you. For I have passed on to them the commands you gave me, and they accepted them, and know of a certainty that I came down to earth from you, and they believe you sent me. 
My plea is not for the world, but for those you have given me because they belong to you. And all of them, since they are mine, belong to you. And you have given them back to me with everything else of yours. And so, they are my glory. Now I'm leaving the world and leaving them behind and coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your care, all those you have given me, so that they will be united just as we are, with none missing. During my time here, I've kept them safe within your family. All of these you gave me. I guarded them so that not one perished, except for the son of hell, as the scriptures foretold. Now I'm coming to you. I've told them many things while I was with them so that they will be filled with my joy. I have given them your commands and the world hates them because they don't fit in with it, just as I don't. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from Satan's power. (laughs) They're not part of this world any more than I am. Make them pure and holy through teaching them your words of truth. As you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. And I consecrate myself to meet their need for growth in truth and holiness. I'm not praying for these alone, but also for the future believers who have come to me because of the testimony of these. My prayer for all of them is that they will be of one heart and mind, just as you and I are, Father. That just as you are in me and I am in you, they will be in us. And the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me. The glorious unity of being one as we are. I and them and you and me all being perfected into one. So that the world will know you sent me. And will understand that you love them as much as you love me. Father I want them with me. These you've given me so that they can see your glory. You gave me the glory because you loved me before the world began. Oh, righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. (laughs) And these disciples know you sent me. And I have revealed you to them and will keep on revealing you so that the mighty one, so that the mighty love you have for me may be in them. And I in them. John 17. Thanks, Nathan. So what I want to do is I want to sort of examine that prayer. And I want to delve deep and peel back the layers so as to contrast um, modern form of freedom as being an individual, uh, being an individual and God's form of freedom, which is choosing intimacy. Now, the first thing I notice when I look at that prayer is there's this concept that kind of drives the prayer forward. And it's this concept of knowing. Knowing. Jesus is constantly praying that the disciples would know him as he knows the Father, as the Father knows him, that they would know one another, that we would know the truth. Now, why that's interesting is because in modern discourse, individuality says to know. But what does individuality say to know? It says to know yourself, to know thyself. 
If you ask the question to a pre-modern society, who are you? If you ask that question, who are you? More often than not, their answer would take the form of, I'm Russell, I'm the son of Tim and Diane. I'm the husband of Anna. I'm the brother to Matthew and Andrew. They would take, I'm, I'm, I'm an American. It would take some form of relationships. Who I was in a pre-modern society was found in my family, in my relationships, in my friendships, in my tribe. Ask a modern person. I'm asking you, who are you? How do you answer that? Who are you? You'd probably ask it to 10 different people, get 10 different answers. And more often than not, I think we at least include somewhere in there our occupation, which is really telling that work has been privileged to such a, a degree that that defines who we are. Tim Keller puts it this way. He goes, in all former cultures, people developed a self by moving toward others, seeking their attachment. We found ourselves, as it were, in the face of others. But modern secularism teaches that we can develop ourselves only by looking inward, by detaching and leaving home religious communities and all other requirements so that we can make our own choices and determine who we are for ourselves. In the pre-modern understanding, you found yourself by looking in the face of others. In our modern society, we find ourselves by looking inward. You see this also in the heroic narrative, in literature. Um, in the ancient world, the, heroic, the trope of the heroic narrative was one of self-sacrifice. You knew the hero because they sacrificed themselves for a higher ideal, for another person, for love, whatever. In the modern literature, the heroic narrative is one of self-discovery and self-assertion. And we see this, it, 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 it infiltrates everything. I'm gonna put up lyrics to a song. Maybe you know it. It goes like this. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. I see some smiles in the room. Let it go, let it go. <laughs> right? But look at that, look at that. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. The heroic narrative is one of Elsa, is that her name? Elsa's self-discovery. She figures out who she is. She looks inward and she knows I'm an individual. As Keller says, I find myself not by self-giving to something outside, but through self-expression of something inside. Now, before we go any further, I'm, I'm pointing out these, these observations not to denounce individuality. I think there's some incredible good that has come of this. In the ancient world, you were born, whatever social class you were born into, that's who you were. There was no escaping that. So consequently, there was tremendous amounts of prejudice and like sexism. And in the modern world, um, we know that you're not, whatever class you're born into is not necessarily where you stay. And we're still dealing with sexism, but at least we know about it. So I'm not like denouncing individuality entirely, but I am saying it's interesting when you look at pre-modern versus modern conceptions of the self, of freedom. The modern world says to know yourself, to discover yourself. But Jesus, in his prayer, 
talking about intimacy. He also talks about knowing. He says humans are meant to know, but he prays that they would know another, namely God. In verse three, at the start of, at the start of his prayer, he goes, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus, the Messiah, whom you have sent. Anyone in here wondering what eternal life is? That's it. You just heard it straight from Jesus. It's knowing the Father and knowing the Son. Now, what's fascinating is that there are different Greek verbs used for knowing, to know. Uh, The three of the main ones that you see in this prayer are gnosko, which has the connotation of uh, uh, cognitive knowing, rational knowing. Pistuo, which means I have faith, which is really interesting because um, we would translate pistuo, I believe. But in modern understanding, belief has become purely cognitive. But in the Greek, it was more robust. It wasn't just cognitive, it was, it was more of like, I trust. To say I believe is to say I trust. Now take the example of a trust fall, right? I, I say, I'm trusting that you're gonna catch me. I don't necessarily cognitively know. I mean, I know there are people down there. I know I can trust them, hopefully, that they don't want my harm. But it's, it's deeper. It's a knowing that's deeper than just cognitive. It's, it's full-bodied. And then phanareo is also there, which means to reveal, to make known. And in 26 verses in this prayer, you see one of those verbs 13 times. Jesus says, I have made your name known to them. I have revealed you to them. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I gave to them and they have received them and know in truth that I came from you. Now the reason why I point these various Greek verbs out is because I think it illustrates something else. That knowing for Jesus is not just cognitive, it's it's embodied. It's more than just, you, mo- you know with more than just the mind, you know with your body. And that actually has scriptural precedent. In the Hebrew, the word for know is yada, which I wonder if that's where George Lucas got Yoda from. I'm just curious about that. But yada, to yada means to know. And it can mean to know rationally, but it also has a wide range of meaning. One of which, it's a euphemism for sexual intercourse. So in Genesis 4.1, when it's talking about Adam and Eve, it says, now the man, Adam, knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived. So in the Hebrew tradition, to know someone could also be an idiom for to have sex with them. Now, I said I didn't want to um, limit intimacy to just romantic relationships, but that's also an interesting segue for our purposes. Because when you contrast intimacy versus modern sexuality, it is really interesting. Supposedly, we are one of the freest societies there's ever been when it comes to sex. But I think if you look beneath the surface, you find that sex is not synonymous with intimacy, especially if if, um, our individual notion is to know yourself and intimacy is to know another. In fact, what I think is, is if sex is a means of knowing, if sex is one way we can know another, then individual sex is to know myself, while intimate sex, the type of sex that God created, is to know another. 
FYI, if anyone's curious, this is like Anna's favorite topic of conversation. No joke, I love it too. So um, we have a passion to start talking more about sex in the church because we think it's gone out of style and we don't know why. Anyway, it was really fascinating. Anna, uh, she's from Portland and Portland is an incredibly progressive place. And she actually, in undergrad, she majored in psychology. Uh, she wanted to be a Christian sex counselor. And so she was taking courses about sexuality in Portland and she had a professor. And you're not gonna find a place more um, drinking dry from this concept of the individual than Portland State University psychology department, okay? They love the concept of the individual. And a professor was talking and uh, he was saying in his experience, he had counseled hundreds and hundreds of couples and many of them had come into him and they'd said, hey, it's gone dry in the bedroom. We need, we need something to spice it up. We need, um, can you give us a, a trick or something to spice it up? And his answer, mind you, this is in Portland. His answer was 99% of the time, what I told them to do is go home, look each other in the eye and tell them what's going on in their soul. What they needed was not another trick. What they needed was to know the other. They needed to communicate because intimacy is not the same as sex. Intimacy, as God has designed it, is to know the other, not to know yourself. This became very real for Anna and I um, when we started dating. I had never dated someone um, seriously before. And so my only experience was doing it the wrong way uh, in college. And so I wanted to pursue Anna when we first met the right way, but I was so afraid. I didn't know how to do it. And so she was like, oh, slow your roll. All right, we need to back this down. And she goes, she tells me this. I remember, I still remember this day. We were sitting on her porch in Portland and she goes, my body doesn't know you yet, which I found an interesting phrase. I never heard that. My body doesn't know you. And she goes, let's start by holding hands. I had never held a girl's hand before. And I still remember the first time we held hands, sitting in rocking chairs, I go to hold her hand and right as I hold her hand, I turn away. I can't look her in the eyes. I'm sweating profusely, no joke, ask her about this. I'm sweating profusely, my palms are clammy and I can't look at her. I feel more exposed and vulnerable than anything I had ever experienced in my life. Sure, I had a past, so I thought, oh no, I understand intimacy. I learned a valuable lesson right there that intimacy and sex are not the same thing. That the life God is calling us to is to know another, not to know ourselves. That in fact, we discover ourselves in the face of another and trust. And so what you see is that Jesus is praying that his disciples would know God and know him and then know one another. But when you, when you look at the, this language of knowing, this core of Jesus's prayer is that Christians would maintain true embodied knowing. But of what? The Greek phrase you see throughout is lagos. Lagos or rhema. So he says, these words that you gave me, I have given to them and they received and they know truly that I came from you. And they know, they, they have faith that you sent me. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
Now, lagos is another Greek word that's really difficult to define because it's so broad and so expansive. It has a range of meanings, some of which is like word, saying, doctrine, discourse, reason, or story. Someone's lagos is their word, their, their saying, their truth, their discourse, or their story, which I find that last part really, really compelling. Jesus is saying, I've given them your truth. I've given them your lagos. I've given them your words, your story. They see it, they trust it. They know it, protect them in it, sanctify them by it. One's lagos is a story. Now why that's fascinating is because at least it's true with me. I would assume if we're both humans, it's probably true with you as well. That most of the time, inhibitors to intimacy, inhibitors to getting intimate with someone, be it a spouse, a friend, family, doesn't matter. Inhibitors is fear of your lagos being known. It's fear of your story being seen. I'm reading a book right now, and I'm only halfway through, so I can't tell you how it ends, but it's a really, really good book. It's called A Little Life by Hanya Yanagahari. It was a recommendation from someone in our congregation, and it's compelling and tragic. But there's a character in there named Jude, and Jude has had a really, really tough life. And he doesn't let anyone in. He doesn't let anyone in, not even his best friends. They know bits and pieces. And there's a scene in there where Jude is being adopted. Um, And he's already a grown man. He's being adopted by um, a mentor of his, a law professor and a mentor. But as the day gets closer to adoption, he grows terribly afraid. And anxiety overtakes him. And he acts out in various ways because he knows that his newly adopted father doesn't know his true story. He doesn't know his lagos and he's afraid that he doesn't wanna deceive him, but if he told him his lagos, if he told him what he was and what had happened to him and what he had done, then maybe he wouldn't wanna adopt him anymore. And like I said, I'm only halfway through, so I don't know exactly what happens, but there is a scene right before he, he is adopted where he's talking to him and he, he goes, something's happened, but I can't tell you what. And Harold, who's the guy who's gonna adopt him, he goes, well, in the absence of specifics, I won't be able to specifically reassure you. Which I find an unbelievable phrase. I think we do this to Jesus all the time. We do this to one another. We're like, look, if you knew the fullness of my story, you wouldn't forgive me, you wouldn't love me. And Jesus is saying, look, I already know. I already know, I was there. But if you're not gonna give me the specifics, which I already know, but it, it helps. I don't know if you've ever been in this experience to say out loud what has happened and then to receive the specific, you're forgiven for that. You're forgiven. In the absence of specifics, you can't be specifically reassured. And Jude is thinking later and he goes, it's not because I don't trust you, but I can't bear for you to see me as I really am. Most of the time, inhibitors of intimacy is we're afraid, what if you see me as I really am? I know who I really am, but I'm putting on, I'm truthful enough, but if you see who I really am, there's no way you love me. 
And now what's so fascinating is because Jesus says the exact opposite. And I actually had a moment where I experienced that with Anna. It was two weeks before we were about to get married. Um, and there was a lot of change happening. We were to get married. So anyone who understands wedding planning, it was chaos. And then we were moving three days later to North Carolina for me to finish school. We were trying to decide where we were gonna end up after school. So there was a lot of decisions. Anna had never lived outside of Portland. There was just a lot happening. And we were sitting together um, one, one day and she just broke out in tears. She just broke down crying. And she starts telling to me, I'm so afraid and I'm so lonely and I'm so angry. And she was scared to tell me this. She was scared. She had been hiding it because she thought that if she revealed her lagas, if she revealed her story, I would be repelled by it. But anyone who's been in a situation like that, you know it's the exact opposite. I actually swelled with love in a way that I hadn't felt since. I swelled because in that moment, it was such a tremendous honor to be allowed into someone else's story. It was such a tremendous privilege. In that moment, I loved her more than I thought possible. See, Christians, we don't fear our story being known. At least we shouldn't. And the reason why is because Jesus has already burrowed down to the core of your story, to the core of what has happened to you and what you've done. He knows it. He knows it. He wants you to know that he knows and he's staring right at it. And he's saying, you're forgiven. I love you. I always have. We don't fear our story being known for there is nothing in our story that Jesus hasn't forgiven. And therefore, if Jesus has forgiven us of all, we're not afraid to reveal our lagos to one another. But there's more. There's more to this true embodied knowing of the Lagos. As Jesus prays that the disciples would know God and they would know his Lagos, they would know his story and they would be protected by it. There's more to this, this idea of the Lagos that creates intimacy. We're reading from John's gospel, John's account of Jesus's life. And in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, he begins his story of Jesus's life with this sentence. And he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, you might've already put two and two together. The Greek word for word is lagos. John begins his account of Jesus's life and he says, in the beginning was the lagos. And the Lagos was with God, and the Lagos was God. In John's gospel, the Lagos has a name. His name is Jesus. The Lagos is a person. So when Jesus prays to the Father about his disciples, and he says, I have revealed your name to those you have given me out of the world. He's saying, I have revealed the Father I have revealed your name, Father, to those you have given me, and your name is Jesus. It's me. Holy Father, protect them in your name. Protect them in the name of Jesus. 
which you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus is saying, look, Father, your lagash, your word, your story, it has a name, it's me. I am the revelation of the Father to the world. I am the revelation. For those of you who are struggling with faith, don't know what to think about this God, God is revealed perfectly in Jesus. If you don't know where to look, look at his story and you'll see who God is like. And what's so powerful about this is that to know another's name is to be bound intimately with them. To know their name, to know their lagas, their story is to be bound intimately. My mom, she grew up in a small town in North Carolina and her grandparents owned a farm. And so she would go out there on the weekend sometime and her grandparents would let her help out in the farm, but they had a rule. They said, you never name the animals because as soon as you name the animals, you can't kill them. It's true. As soon as that pig is no longer pig, but is rosy, you can't eat rosy, right? You don't name the animals because then you're bound to them. You're bound in intimacy to them. I think in the medical profession, I always wonder of, of do y'all remember the scene in Patch Adams where they're around a patient and then he asks, what's her name? Now I know why, why the medical profession does this if they refer to patients as patients and not as their name because that would be far too much stress and trauma and emotional duress. But it's interesting, right? The logic behind it. We create distance by not calling them humans, by calling them patients, by not knowing names. To know their name is to to know something vital about them. In the gospel, God tells us his name. In modern individual society, we make a name for ourselves, right? You hear that phrase, I wanna make a name for myself. When I'm looking inward to discover who I am, I make my own name. In the gospels, we hear God's name. God goes, I'm gonna tell you my name. And then you're gonna hear your name within that. Individuality, we make a name. Intimacy, we hear our name. And when we know the Lagos, when we know God's name, Jesus, we join the dance of intimacy, which is the eternal union of the triune God. We become one as he is one. You see that constantly throughout this prayer. He prays that they may all be one, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may trust, may know that you have sent me. God is three in one. We talked about this a couple weeks back about the idea of the Trinity. And in a sense, what the Trinity is, is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit standing in a circle, holding hands, looking inward, adoring each other's faces. God in his very nature, in his very being, in his substance, is not selfish, but is selfless, is looking to the others, adoring, delighting, loving. And then what happens in the gospel? is that the son drops the hands of the father and the spirit and goes to the world to bring you and me back into the dance. The entire gospel is the triune God making room in their intimacy for us to be one in them as they are one in themselves. 
They want to be known. God wants to be known. Why is that like the central um, cry of all of our hearts? We want to be known because that's who God is. You're being called to a life of intimacy, to be known. The gospel is how the intimate God makes room in himself to reveal his story, his lagos, his name to us, that we may join in this intimacy. Jesus is how we get to know God. But we're not good at that. We're not good at this intimacy. And the reason is is clear. We've been hurt. We've been wounded. We've revealed ourselves to another. We've been betrayed. And if we're being honest, I've betrayed others. I've wounded them. I've hurt them. And so you, you have these scars, these wounds, and yeah, man, is it worth it to try again? I don't even know how to pursue that level of intimacy. Well, luckily, God leaves us uh, a way out. I think that God works through people. He, he has groups of people on this earth that teach us, uncomfortably so, about intimacy, about his form of intimacy. And there are a couple groups, but two that are just off the top of my head for these purposes. Children. Children are one. You ever seen a child, how free they are? How trusting? How much they delight in another? How joyful? They teach us about the intimacy of God. And I think another group is who we mistakenly call the disabled. The disabled teach us about the intimacy of God. Um, there's, a, there's a community started by a man named Jean Vanier called L'Arche. And L'Arche are community, they're homes throughout the world where um, the disabled and the abled live together. And they model this type of prayer. They model the intimacy of Christ in these homes. And Stanley Hauerwas, he tells the story one time where he went to a large community and he walked in and he had never met anyone there. And a, and a, a young girl with Down syndrome, she ran to him and jumped into his arms. And then she kissed him on the lips. And he goes, you can imagine, I was very uncomfortable. Why? Because we don't know the intimacy of heaven. Because we're not free enough to run to each other and embrace one another. Probably we shouldn't kiss on the lips, but you know, just embrace. (laughs) But God puts these groups who discomfort us to teach us this is the intimacy he's calling us toward. I wanna show a clip from a movie that I think models when we, when one understands this prayer and this prayer sinks in and they know the story of Jesus. They know the name of the Father. They know the intimacy. They're able to create a community that also models that. It's a documentary called The Dropbox. And it tells the story of a South Korean pastor um, who had a son. Uh, he had two children, but his son was born with special needs. And then he realized through the taking care of his son that there was an epidemic in South Korea of of babies being abandoned. And so he uh, built in a drop box into his church. So rather than people abandoning their babies, they could leave the babies there. And he would either foster them or he would adopt them. Ended up adopting many children. So it's telling his story. And I want you to watch 
And the re- what I want you to see in this one particular scene is he's talking about the children and their names. This is an image of the kingdom of heaven, of the intimacy of God offered to all of us when we truly allow it to, to seep through to our very core. So watch us. Jesus, we confess we're terrified of intimacy. We're terrified, Lord, because we have been hurt. It's safer to be an individual. It's safer to, to express freedom by protecting myself, by searching inward, by not allowing anyone else inside who could ever hurt me ever again. But that's not what you prayed. That's not what you prayed for your disciples. Your prayer was that we would know your name. And when we know your name, you tell us our name. You tell us our name. Father, right now, will you speak the names of people in this room? Will you tell them your name? Will you tell them that you see them, that you know them, and you so deeply want them to be in a relationship with you? Come home, scars and all, come home. Reveal yourself. Reveal your story to one another and to me. And I will kiss you. Father, we're scared to come into the light. We're scared to bring things into the light because what if it burns? What if it's uglier than we even imagined? And your words are, oh yes, it will burn, but just for a second. And then it'll feel so good. So good. Father, we live in a world of fear. Everyone's afraid of everyone. But you've not called us to be afraid. You've called us to reveal your name and your story and therefore our story, scars and all to the world. Because the entire point of the gospel is that none of us have anything in and of ourselves that brings hope or salvation or healing. It's all found in you. And that's what the world so desperately needs. They need to know that they need to stop trying. They won't find what they're looking for in themselves. They'll only find it in your name, the name of Jesus. When you ended your prayer, Jesus, you said, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And we receive that. If there are people in this room, Lord, who don't know you, I'd ask you to give them courage. Give them courage to 
to say to you, tell me my name. Tell me your name. Who am I? Give them courage to ask that question to you, Jesus. And then answer them as you answered all of us. And for the rest of us, Lord, for Hope Brooklyn, especially as we're getting ready to launch as a community, Lord. Oh, Father. Will you just make us intimate? Will you make us a place like Pastor Lee's church? Will you make us a place where we run to random strangers and jump into their arms and kiss them because they're home? Would you make us that place that we would be so free, so secure in your love, so secure that you will never abandon us, that that's your story, that's your name, that's your lagos, you'll never abandon us. You've proven that on the cross, so secure that there is nothing in us that you don't see and delight in and kiss and heal and restore. So secure in that, that we are free with one another. We are free with Brooklyn. We are free with our neighbors. We're free with our colleagues without fear. Make us a people without fear. Make us a people without fear, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Amen.